Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Paul Raffleson, the partner at Raffleson Law and an experienced attorney with over 15 years in complex tax, litigation, and M&A matters. Paul is also a trusted resource in the e-com world who is regularly quoted in the press on matters involving Amazon and e-commerce. And he was the most cited resource in the House Antitrust Committee report on Amazon's business practices. On this episode, we discuss tax controversy, what makes sales tax complicated for e-commerce brands, his involvement with the Online Merchants Guild, and much more. Here's our interview now. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're very happy to have you. So first off, why don't you tell me a little bit about your law firm, Raffleson Law Firm? Sure. We're an e-commerce focused law firm. We started about six years ago. It was just me and it was by accident. It was uh, like one of these things where I wrote a blog post for somebody and uh, it turned into a law practice by accident. It wasn't my intent. I actually had a pretty good nine to five before that. I liked the nine to five situation that I had. So I wasn't one of those people who's like, you know, person that I'm to five and dime and get out and be on my own. It's hard to be on your own in businesses. It's really hard, uh, even as a lawyer. And it's still hard. It's just a lot of work. There's a lot of people don't understand about it. That it's just, you know, the day to day, it's just, it's, it's a grind and, and you feel like you never get a day off. And so what I loved about my nine to five was we did get days off. They were called weekends and vacations and Fridays in the summer. So that, that's all gone now. But I love what I do and I'm passionate about like the big picture stuff that we do. So it's all worth it. That's awesome. Well, I, I will say personally, like I've, I've been a, a freelancer for a while now and I like the idea of autonomy and kind of being able to be your own boss a little bit. Now that still means that you got to answer to clients every now and then. And I, I feel like that's something that you you still deal with, even though you're, you're your own boss, you're operating, you know, 24 seven answering to someone. So getting into e-commerce, how is e-commerce law different than any sort of standard business law? It's a great question. So the way I look at it, you know, a little bit about my background, I was an e-commerce seller in the early 2000s. So I did it early, early on. And when I wrote that blog post six years ago, it's based on that experience and some other experience I had that led me down this path of realizing that there was a need for e-commerce law and that it is a thing. Right. And, you know, one, you can look at it one way and say, well, it's kind of just a hodgepodge of current law subject matters. Right. So it's, it's definitely IP, right? Intellectual property, patents, trademarks, copyrights. You got your business law. So you have LLCs, contract law, things like that, compliance law, FDA, FTC. So you kind of take like all of these areas of law that apply to like the national economy or international economy. And it's not like you don't need to be the world's most renowned expert on FDA law. That's not what you need. You need to know enough, right? And you need to know enough about these areas of law because 90% of the time, that's all you're going to need to know. And you need to know for that 10% of the time when your client needs a little more. When your client does need that, that, that specialist, that, that expert, you need to be able to see that. But you've got to be able to kind of dance in all these different areas of law because they all kind of work together and support what is what I call e-commerce law. And, you know, how do I sort of get there? I sort of back into it. E-commerce law to me uh, was born out of a concept, something that happened uh, in the dawn of e-commerce, you know, sort of, you know, towards the tail end of the 90s and into the 2000s, was that once, you know, when, when we all basically got the freedom to sell in e-commerce, what that did was it created this thing called the global small business. Right. 
if I said I was a global small business owner in 1980, people would look at me like I'm crazy, right? There's no such thing as a global small business owner in 1980, right? How could you do that? But with like Amazon, for example, right, where you're getting, you know, I can come up with an idea for a product. I don't need to go on Shark Tank. I don't need to go pitch it in Bentonville, Arkansas at Walmart. I used to work, by the way. I can just literally come up with the idea and for not a lot of money, bring it to market. And I can have, you know, mass scale logistics behind it with Amazon FBA. And I can reach the entire country and I can reach other countries and I'm importing from China. So you see like very quickly, yes, you're a small business operating from your laptop on your kitchen table or from Starbucks, but you're actually a global small business. And that to me was the realization aha moment that made me realize I need to do something here because most lawyers who support small businesses are not supporting global small businesses. They're supporting local small businesses, right? So I'm not a lawyer you'd want to go to. Like if you wanted to set up like a pastry shop in the middle of town, I'm probably not that lawyer you want to go to. I can help you with some of it, but there's a lot of like permitting and local stuff that I, I don't have. But none of that's really relevant when you're a global small business because there you're not answering to your town. You're answering it's not about your local permit. Like you don't need a permit. It's you don't need you don't need you don't need to have hours in accordance with town ordinances. You're selling across the entire nation. You're selling across the countries. You're importing from other countries. So that global small business concept that I've probably just beaten to death the last five minutes is really though to me the essence of what e-commerce law is about. It's about how do you support that business. In my life, I came from big law. I came from Microsoft, Walmart, General Electric, working for really big companies. So I grew up learning uh, a commerce clause, constitutional law, which I teach in New York as well. It's putting that all together and sort of saying, okay, how does this stuff that I used to apply for like Microsoft or G or Google, you know, how do you do that for the smaller businesses? Because they need it now too. How do you scale a large scale law practice, like a practice that's designed to support large businesses in interstate and international commerce? How do you scale that down to smaller businesses? And that's what we did. And uh, the secret is in part has to do with the fact that there is a lot of overlap. There's a lot of repetition, right? I know most of my clients' issues before they even meet me. They're surprised. A lot of my clients are surprised to know that I know so much about their business, but it's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm really good at business. It's because there's a lot of overlap when you're an e-commerce and Amazon business that we can figure out. Like, we know where your barriers are. We know where your problems are going to be for the most part. And then there'll be some unique problems you have based on what you sell. But 80% of what you do, you probably already know your issues before you ever call us. I think that's a key element of what we do because it's efficient. Otherwise, how else do you do this? Because it would be extremely inefficient to provide big law legal to small businesses. It, would, it wouldn't work. I'm extremely interested. I'm sorry to cut you off. I was just, just the way that- No, 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 it's good, it's good. You were thinking about it. E-commerce law is so different than anything else because it's not like you can look at a constitution and say- Oh, this is exactly, you know, how the law should be operated in e-commerce. And, you know, for me personally, I was pretty, pretty young, but I know that like the very first example of e-commerce that I could think of is like eBay. You know, I mean, that was probably the first thing that I remember in terms of e-commerce law. And and I guess my my question that I'm trying to get to is at what point are laws decided and regulated in the, in the scope of e-commerce? I mean, is it, you know, the Wild West until people start suing each other and, and IP has to come into it? Or 
you know, when e-commerce started to be popularized, there was legislation that then had to dictate you can do this, you can you you can't do that. I mean, how is precedent decided in e-commerce scale and how is it continuing to be decided to this day still? So from the federal level, you know, we do run, we have to rely on the federal statutes that are in place, right? We have to rely on things like the Internet Tax Freedom Act, we have to rely on the Lanham Act or trademarks, and we have to rely on what's out there. Where it gets dicey, though, it's the after the state laws that really make it messy, right? And that's where the Constitution, even though it was written a very long time ago, it's still relevant. So, you know, I sort of was joking with something today. I said, you know, part of what we do when we do state law analysis and state law issues is we kind of have to think about it like, you know, sort of asking ourselves the questions like, what would George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin think about this situation? Like, we kind of have to do that, right? We have to look at the analysis and say, look, they designed, they actually wrote, there's a commerce clause in our constitution. It's designed to protect interstate commerce. It's designed to say, when things like e-commerce come around, don't let states regulate it and burden it to death, right? Which they've already done, right? And and they're already doing it. We're just kind of like resisting it, but it's done with the taxes. So that's the issue that actually got me into this was, right? It's like, you see all these states, like there's this new thing where like people from all walks of life are just making a lot of money being their own business owner in this new way. It's just really cool. You know, what I loved about it was sort of the freedom, the, you know, sort of the privileges and news aspect is that like, you know, here I'm meeting people who are making six figure salaries or more six figure incomes uh, or more or a lot more. Right. But at least in areas where that's not common. Right. So like somebody making a six figure income flipping stuff in a Walmart in like Western Kentucky. That's pretty cool because there's not a lot of ways you can make six figure incomes in Western Kentucky unless you're in the coal mining industry. Right. So the way it opens up America and you have this concept of the nomad. So it's not just America, it's the world, right? The digital nomad, right? People who can run business from anywhere. So now, you know, kind of like what we saw with the pandemic and we went from, you know, work from home, like it doesn't, we don't need to be tethered to these big megatropolises and have to live the grinding life of like, you know, living outside of New York City or San Francisco. You can live anywhere you want. And it's that they have freedom. It's really cool. And the fact that people from different opportunity backgrounds are like getting this opportunity to make a lot of money. Like these are all things that, in my mind, as somebody who studied the Constitution teaches this, is like, I would think that our forefathers would have protected that. I think that they would not want to see the states overburdening commerce with their laws. And that's something we fight, you know, all the time, right, is we fight that kind of overburdening uh, behavior uh, by the state governments who are trying to sort of, you know, instill their will, but they don't think about their consequences. They don't think about the consequences of their actions from a 50 state perspective, right? You're not the only state in the country. Take price gouging. Price gouging was a lawsuit we took on a couple of years ago during the pandemic. And it's not because it wasn't because we we support, you know, toilet paper price gouging. We definitely do not. But what that case was about was that it had gotten a little bit crazy. People were getting accused of price gouging on a Nintendo Switch because they were flipping, right? People were getting accused of, you know, states were saying that, you know, it's price gouging if you sell steak seasoning, but it's not price gouging if you sell peanut butter or vice versa. You know, it's, it's like it was so arbitrary and capricious. So it was like, we had to do something because like these states, one of the mistakes they were making when they were going after the Amazon sellers for price gouging was like, well, like, wait a minute. Well, this is really Amazon's responsibility because as a reseller, as somebody who goes out and brings product to Amazon for resale, right? Not that I, you know, sort of people do that. It's like, we don't control estate pricing. So if I can't set the price of a good in Kentucky and only Kentucky versus say Ohio, then how can I really be responsible for price gouging? Because Amazon only lets you set a national price. There's no state-specific prices. So if we're going to yield to a Kentucky price gouging law, but that's going to affect the availability of pricing of goods in 49 other states, 
right? And then the 48 of those states have their own price gouging regime and you can't control. So like what it basically does is if you understand what's going on here is you're basically putting like interstate commerce to a grinding halt because it's impossible to comply. All of a sudden I find you find yourself as a seller. It's like, I can't comply with this law because, you know, this state says it should be this price. This state says it should be that price. And this state says this is, I can't even sell it. And like, what do I do? And so that's sort of what we call a burden on interstate commerce that we took on because we're like, that's really wrong. And our solution wasn't that price gouging laws were, were invalid. We actually didn't. We just said Amazon itself is the party that needs to be regulated. Amazon should be able to either seed control on a state-by-state basis or manage the pricing of goods as it is their store on a state-by-state basis. And so that the seller who's going out there getting the stuff knows how to safely price items because Amazon's basically, you know, responsible. That's all we were saying. We weren't trying to get rid of price gouging. We're just trying to say like, and and you had to understand the agenda too. Amazon spend, you know, tens of billions of dollars in states like Ohio, Kentucky, right? To make these giant hubs. So the, obviously the states aren't going after Amazon, right? Amazon gets a free pass. Amazon gets away with a lot in these states. So there's a lot of corruption we have to overcome as well at the state level. So I think from the state law, law perspective, it's really interesting. Now, going back to the federal, you know, the biggest issue right now is obviously whether or not Amazon should stay together, right? Whether they should break it apart. Uh, this is something the antitrust committee is trying to do. And we were very vocal in supporting the antitrust investigation with real life examples. But where did it end up? Do we actually think Amazon should be broken up? That's a, that's a different question. But, you know, they're looking at the perspective of is Amazon too dominant? Have we created a monster here? And, and, and do we need to do something to sort of like make the playing field more level for everybody involved in commerce? And that's what the government's trying to do. So that's what we see mostly at the federal level these days. That's sort of, you know, and there's ways to take advantage of that because obviously Amazon doesn't want to be broken up. So there's ways you can play that as well. Is that also the same reason why sales tax is such a complicated subject is because all of these different states have have totally different positions on what that looks like. You know, I mean, I personally, when I go up to Massachusetts, I do a lot of shopping, like clothes shopping and stuff like that, because they don't have a sales tax. But I know that's more like brick and mortar, small business. I guess my question there is why is sales tax so complicated? And what are the various US states positions on sales tax? Yeah, so sales tax is the classic example of like a state overburning interstate commerce, and it's disgusting, and it's terrible, and it's it's fraudulent, and in the way it's been administered in the past. So, I mean, this is this is the you know a Pandora's box of a question you've just asked. Where do you begin with sales tax? So, sales tax, um, yes, every state has the right to administer their own sales tax at their own rate, right? However they want, right? That's that's the basics. Massachusetts chooses not to tax clothing. That's great. States like Washington, where they have no income tax, tends to have a higher sales tax and they tax everything. They'll tax anything and everything. Clothing, medicine, they don't care, right? So that's sort of how tax policy works across the different states. You know, everyone sets their own policy. With e-commerce, you had the Wayfair case, which was this case that sort of said like, hey, you know, this old understanding that that, that there was this sort of barrier to taxation called physical presence, that you, you couldn't be subject to tax in the state unless your physical presence, we're going to take that away. That case made a lot of sense because what states were arguing was like, it's too much of a burden. Sorry, what, what companies were arguing in the past was that it's too burdensome to have to deal with 50 state you know, sales tax, which is really like 12,000 jurisdictions or, or something stupid like that. Because you got to count all the cities and towns that have crazy taxes, which is common in a number of states. Um, you know, it's like Arizona, for example, Colorado, for example. Right. You could have like a hundred different tax jurisdictions in just one state. You have these sort of different, different tax laws that, that now the Supreme Court's saying, well, now you don't have to be physically present, physically present. And here are these thresholds that the states are, are promoting, such as a hundred thousand dollars in sales or 200 individual sales transactions. 
and it triggers nexus and you have to collect. Well, the problem is, is that, well, the court never really endorsed this. What the Supreme Court really said was, you know, a company the size of Wayfair, a multi-billion dollar company, a company where, you know, speaking of Massachusetts, you walk out of government center in Boston and you look right up, that big skyscraper in front of you says Wayfair is used to right on top. This company has no business arguing that it's burdensome to collect sales tax in every state. No business. They can afford, they can clearly afford a tax department of hundreds of people. Right. They just don't want to. They don't want to because it's a price advantage, right? They don't want to mm-hmm. collect because they yeah. want to be able to sell stuff cheaper. They pretend it's a burden, but it's it's not that. So the court putting the kibosh on that, I appreciate that. That's fine. But what the states are really doing is they're going after the small businesses and they're saying, Hey, you've got to collect our tax. It's like, are you I mean, and that's where it gets problematic because it is really, really expensive to collect taxes. It's really complicated. And when you register at all of these individual states, like you're not just registering to collect sales tax, you're registering for po- possible income tax. Right, because all the states want to get you for income tax. We just won a court case in Pennsylvania that was a sales tax case, but it was really about income tax. It was really about the state trying to get all the sales tax people into income tax collection payments. Right, so now you're paying income tax in every state. Like, like you have no idea as a business owner how burdensome it would be if you have to start paying all the taxes in every state oh that gosh. they expect you to pay. Yeah. So when these, these software companies sell you 50 state registration and they're like, oh, it's so cheap, they're lying. They're lying. They've been lying since day one. You know, Avalara, the big one, they went public right before that Wayfair case came down, you know, because they do. It was just game over. And they trick a lot of small business owners who have no business registry, who probably have constitutionally constitutional protections to doing it. And it's sad because then when they do it, they find themselves in a situation where now they're being assessed back taxes. All these back, oh, well, you should have registered, you know, that Wayfair case is great, but you were using Amazon. You had physical presence going back to 2012, so you owe six years of back taxes. I mean, just really, really awful stuff. And they, these states terrorize people constantly. So we took a stand against that. And we're still taking a stand against it because we think it's wrong. But that's an example of like states overburdening it. And the reality is, is a lot of the sales tax issues in the past centered around Amazon. And the irony of that whole thing is that under the law, there's a federal law called the Internet Tax Freedom Act, which says that whatever you do in the brick and mortar world has to be the same in online. So you can't like make the taxpayer, you know, the customer in one in in the offline world, but then make it like the wholesaler in the offline world, right? Because maybe the wholesaler has more of a connection to the state than the you know, like you can't do that. You have to do the same. And typically in sales tax, what you do is wherever the cash register is, that's where the tax is paid, right? Whoever's holding the cash register, right? Like whoever's processing transaction. And with Amazon, they were always the ones processing transaction. So it's their store. And but yet they through their sort of quid pro quo bribery of different states. So, like, oh, we're going to put headquarters here. We're going to put warehouses there. I mean, they fucking lied and bribed the shit out of these states to basically like turn their blind eye to the reality that, that Amazon is doing that fraud and, and not collecting taxes on their own sales, on their sales that they would blame the sellers. Oh, the sellers are the stores. Well, no, they're not the stores because they don't even know who the customer is. They're just literally supplying you inventory, Amazon. It's your cash register, right, at all times. But they lied and and they got away with it. And the funniest part is during the whole like sales tax issue, when that was the really big heated issue, Amazon always said they were not a store. They always said we're just a mall. We're like a flea market. We're just, you know. But then for antitrust purposes, and it's really funny, they're saying the opposite. They actually say it's our store. And it's our selling partners, our shared customer, our store. Why are they flipping? Because one, the sales tax issue is kind of dead because for the most part, Amazon now does have to collect tax. So from that perspective, it's dead. But the other is from an antitrust perspective, you know, Amazon gets accused of competing against their sellers, right? It sounds awful, right? I started selling this product, then Amazon's competing against me. Well, if you change the narrative, which is what we tell the antitrust committee Amazon was doing, and they did, it doesn't sound like Amazon's such a bad company when they're competing against their sellers because have you ever been to Costco? 
or, or Sam's Club. Yeah. You know those stores? Yeah. When you go to Costco, right, and you go to like there's like that snuggle, snuggles like that blue fabric softener with a with a cute little bear. With like the bear, bear on it. Yeah. 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 So you get the snuggle, and then right next to the snuggle, what do you get? You get a very blue container of fabric softener that says Kirkland. So is Costco competing against its sellers or suppliers? No. It's it, I mean it is, but it's doing it in a way that's always been sanctioned, the store brand. And so when Amazon's really telling the antitrust committee now, they're saying we are a store. And just like any other store, such as Costco, we're not competing against our sellers, we're just doing store brand. We're allowed to do that. Costco can do it. Walmart can do it. So you can see how they change the narrative to fit their own. Like they, they talk at both sides of the mouth, but they do that all the time, right? To whatever suits the narrative, right? When somebody gets killed using a product that's sold on Amazon's platform, right? We're not the store. It's not our responsibility. We didn't sell the product. We're not liable. But when it's antitrust, oh, it is our store and we can do whatever we want because it's our store. So it's really fascinating how Amazon just blatantly lies under oath. Too, because they also lied under oath to Congress, saying that there was a store, but yet we know many times when they've said under oath where they're not a store. So, it, it, the sales tax thing is a scam. Now, as far as as website sellers today, it's still a problem because you know website sellers, you know, don't know what to do. It is really burdensome. And if you read the Supreme Court's ruling in Wayfair, they actually talk about this notion about you know, hey, we didn't really decide the question of what small business owners, you know, whether they have an obligation to collect. But one thing we think is the court says that if the burden of multi-state tax were to be lifted, then there would be no argument for the sellers on Shopify to refuse tax collection. And I agree with that. But that's not what's happening. The states are not working together to come up with like a, a streamlined solution to tax collection, which is all we want. We don't want the states to have to change the laws. We don't want them to conform to anything. We just want streamlined tax solutions like fuel tax, uh, national fuel tax. Uh, I just named something. Big. But the idea is there were the, with the, the, the truckers, you know, back in the day, you know, the truckers were complaining because they had to like literally report taxes. Every time they drive through a state and burn fuel, they have to report use tax on that fuel. And they had to report it, file a tax return with every state that was burdensome. And so, um, that's where Congress eventually passed the Fuel Tax Act, basically just requiring that the states, there's one state, one state, you report to your home state, where you drove, who you owe tax to, and it's between the states and their clearinghouse to distribute the money. That way, the person paying the tax only has to register once with one organization, their home state, and put the burden on the states to figure out the rest. I like that approach. Why can't we do that with, with Shopify? Why do we need to have individual sellers registering in, in a million in, in all these different states and local jurisdictions just to pay a bunch of tax? Figure out a better way. Figure out a way that's less burdensome on the seller. Figure out a way where it's like, you know, service providers like Shopify or Big Commerce can use certified data reports and just send a report to a clearinghouse and the seller makes one payment and that covers all their taxes. You know, it's certainly doable in the year 2023. I just but the states refuse to and their laziness. And their unwillingness to get with the times is no reason for them to burden interstate commerce. And that's our point of view. And so it's like this shit that they put on all these people. They have to deal with all this stuff you have to deal with. Like you're not, if you do $5 million on Shopify, you're not Walmart. You still can't afford a tax department of, of 50 people or 100 people or 200 people. You know, so it's on you or people you pay. So it costs real money to have to comply with these taxes. So that's why we, why we take such a stand against it. It's just because it's, and it could, it could be so easy, right? A bunch of old men in tax departments basically not refusing to, to get with the times. And, and that's no excuse, right? Would George Washington want, you know, technological progression in commerce to be halted because a bunch of old men in state tax departments can't figure out how to work together? Like, that's stupid. Does it make sense? Is that the American way that when small business owners, when when minorities have opportunities that have never, they've never had before because you really have a truly equal playing field, level playing field platform, all of that good stuff, promoting small businesses, women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, immigrant all that goes away because a bunch of old men 
and tax departments across a bunch of states can't figure it out. I mean, it's just it, it's idiotic that that's that's that, so that's a burden that needs to be resolved. I want to get into part of your experience as to why you know because you clearly are extremely passionate about this subject, and and I can understand why just by very quickly looking at your LinkedIn. Honestly, I mean, you mentioned that you worked in Walmart. You worked for uh, over a decade. You worked for Walmart, GE, and Microsoft. Arguably, the three biggest companies in the U.S. At least, you know, you worked for these companies for a decade in in what's called tax controversy. Now, this isn't something that I'm I'm personally familiar with, but is tax controversy essentially what you've been kind of relegating to us for the for the last few minutes? Um, it, does that inform a lot of your opinions and your passion for how you feel about it? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, tax controversy is a big part of what I did. And we did, you know, some planning and, and M&A stuff. But, you know, controversy is my thing, right? We, we, I love fighting the government. In order to do controversy, especially for the state local stuff, you have to know constitutional law, right? You have to know the commerce laws, due process laws. Like, you have to know those things because they're so important to what we do. Where I think I come from it, though, it's not so much that I'm so great at tax I mean, I was not much of a sales tax person at all. In fact, I got typecasted sort of as, as a sales tax lawyer. And it's so funny. I'm trying to break out of that shell a little bit, like remind people like we do a lot more than sales tax. But where I think you're right, the passion comes from is the fact that like I have defended these companies in some really bogus cases, really nonsense cases where like states have gone after their companies for just made completely making it up, right? Just because they know that they can, because they know that if they can make up a a tax assessment against Microsoft or GE, or, you know, that probably they'll settle for millions of dollars because at the end of the day, millions of dollars ain't much to these companies, right? They're like, it's like pennies, right? I once saved a company like a hundred million dollars. I got like a gift card to Applebee's. I could have been a different gift. It could have been somewhere else, but I felt for purposes of advertising the story in the future, I clicked Applebee's. That's crazy. You know, but it, it, they just don't care. So coming from that perspective, then seeing Amazon throwing its weight around, basically just cheating and lying and basically defrauding the government in a way that like nobody in my world would ever have the chutzpah, the balls, whatever you want to call it, right? Then nobody would ever have the the goal to do something like that, right? It's just just in such a way and seeing them get away with it. And then seeing them like basically blame shift the whole thing onto these innocent sellers, right? Like look up Isabel Rubina, R-U-B-I-N-A, look her up on the Chicago Tribune article where they took where California came in so, you know, this woman had a failed business that just totally failed over COVID. If life wasn't bad enough at that point, come December, California says she owes a bunch of money and they take the last $2,000 out of her bank account two days before Christmas and she's got kids, little kids. And we sued the state. We sued the state in federal court. And we're trying, you know, we're trying to make a change here. Not easy. We couldn't even get into court. You know, we're still fighting to get into court. We know we, it's so tyrannical, the tax system in our country. Like people don't realize it is an ass. That's why I don't love this idea of like hiring a bunch of organizations because I'm like, you know, it's like it's like due process and tax. There's none. Like it, like there's a presumption of guilt whenever it's tax related, and you have a very high bar to climb. And we're trying to say, hey, in certain cases, that's not appropriate, especially you know in sales tax cases where it's not even your tax. You're just being deemed a collector, and we're challenging registration. So that's what we've been pushing at. But yeah. It all stems from the fact that, yeah, Amazon is getting away with something that no company in the world has ever gotten away, nor should they. I mean, if you really want to understand what Amazon's doing, too, it's not tax fraud. It's not tax evasion, right? Like Amazon, the whole marketplace concept and the idea that they're not responsible was designed so that they could avoid sales tax on more than 50% of their catalog. Why? Because it meant that that's a money saver for the consumer. Because if I can buy a MacBook on Amazon and save $120 in 2012, guess what? I just paid for my Prime membership. It's free, right? Like it's a great value, right? If I don't have to pay sales taxes on a, on a MacBook, 
my, my, my prime members. So in a way, until about 2019, pretty much our home states were subsidizing our prime memberships because they were refusing to enforce the law against Amazon. And they were going along with this bullshit narrative that we needed to change the law in order to hold Amazon accountable for tax, which is what our gross case is about in California. No, that's not true. It's Amazon's store. Amazon, as the South Carolina court said, was basically, just so you can understand how stupid their argument was, imagine you walked into your local like Target store. Like, like, imagine you live near a Target, right? We all live near a Target, right? Or a Walmart. Imagine you walk into that store. You walk into that physical store and you buy some type of uh, tech device, you know, like maybe you buy a TV made by, by a company in China, right? And, and you buy a $1,000 TV and you ring it up and there's no sales tax. And, and you being a curious person, Ask, why are you not charging sales tax? They say, well, because we're not selling you this TV. Like, what do you mean? Like, we're not selling you the TV. This is being sold to you by the Chinese company that makes the TV. We're just facilitating the sale with our cash registers and our store and our shelves. We're brokers. We're not actually selling it to you. Yeah. It's being sold to you by the company that makes the TV. Yeah, we're brokers. Yeah, our store is just a giant brokerage house, right? Now, do you think Target would get away with that argument if they tried to do that? Of course not, right? Like, nobody would ever get away with that argument. Right. You can't open up a store in Times Square in New York and say, oh, we're just brokering for somebody in China. We're not responsible for the taxes. But that's literally what Amazon did. They are made that argument. And the only reason it worked is because they did the whole, you know, they were bundling their argument with headquarters and, and other uh, jobs related to uh, that they needed anyway to build that e-commerce railroad that was fulfillment by Amazon, right? FBI. They needed to build it anyway. So they would tell the states, you know, accept our narrative or else we're not going to build here. So an example, in one case, they told like in WAC, it was like, I think it was uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. They built a big, they were going to build a big facility in Wisconsin. Wisconsin said, well, wait a minute. We looked at how you run your business. We think you're responsible for the tax 100%. And Amazon said, well, that's great. You think that we're just going to move that warehouse we're planning to build over to Illinois. And they said, well, on second thought, we think you're fine. And then, of course, Wisconsin then went after all the small sellers out of state. So that type of scumbag tyranny, yeah, I don't put up with that. That... That is what motivated me to get started in this business because I just couldn't believe in front of my eyes in, 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 a, in a democratic American society that I've lived in that this is what we're doing now. That states are basically trading favors with big corporations in such a way. Now, I say that because I've seen that done before. Like when I was at GE, we did this headquarters move thing, right? Where like we didn't want to pay like property tax or something in Boston, right? Okay, well, that's very different than sales tax because let's say I'm about to build a giant warehouse or some sort of, you know, I'm going to take down a bunch of like abandoned warehouse spaces in Worcester, Massachusetts and build something really cool. And I want, in exchange for that, no property tax. Fine. That's not that big a deal. If instead what I want is the ability to sell goods tax-free, like if I'm GE and I said, I'm going to build this warehouse in Massachusetts, build this new uh, technology center in Massachusetts where this old warehouse used to be, and you're going to give me property tax exemption. And if I sell a jet engine to an airline, they don't have to pay sales tax. Well, that's a problem because not having to pay sales tax compared to your competition, that's a competitive disadvantage. Right. Or a competitive advantage. Right. Like if Subaru were able to convince the state of New Jersey to say that no Subarus are subject to sales tax because Subaru's headquarters is in Jersey. Right. What car would everybody in Jersey drive? A Subaru. Right. Because every other comparable car would have a sales tax associated with it. So you'd rather save. Right. You're going to say who wouldn't choose to save two or three thousand dollars in sales tax by buying that car. That's what Amazon did. They basically convinced the states to give them to make them the winner. And give them a competitive advantage over local retail, over other online retail. And it was just it's pure fraud. And we just didn't put up with it. And the fact that they, the states would then go from that position to like, let's go after the sellers and claw back what we should have gotten from them instead of Amazon. That's just like, you know, 
adding fuel to the fire. I mean, that's just, that's just, it's just insult to injury type of thing. It's, it's just disgusting. So having witnessed some pretty egregious behavior and yet something from my background in tax controversy, yeah, it did motivate me to take action because it's just, it's disgusting. It's not what it is tyranny at the end of the day. And we are a country founded on uh, like opposition to tax tyranny, funny enough. And here we are. So the sellers clearly have have rights then that are protected, you know. So what automatic rights do online business owners have when they start selling that that our audience or, or anyone else should know? They have constitutional rights, but when it comes to taxes in particular, it's really hard because the idea of taxes, you're supposed to whenever there's a tax and controversy, you're supposed to pay the tax and then sue for a refund, which is one very expensive, right? I mean, tax controversy cases can cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, right? Like it's not something the average small business. So when you're a lawyer and you understand that the courts are not a place of justice for your, your typical client, which is how we, are, we we do run our law firm on that for a minute. Like we, most of our clients we know belong, do not belong in a courtroom. You have to be a little, little bit more creative because like you know that your client doesn't have the court option to go get justice because that doesn't exist for most of us. That's that's something that only wealthy companies and, and rich people get. Like like typical business owners do not want to go to court. You just it's not worth it. It's never going to be worth it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, you it's just generally end up losing money. Honestly, I mean, once everyone gets paid, once right. you gets paid out, once you get paid out, yeah. once 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 everyone gets paid out, right? I'm usually down five k or something like that. Probably more. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, like to get you know for 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 a court case involving anything like these, I mean, you're starting 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 is is thirty to forty k, right? Like like, like yeah, most crazy. lawyers, any lawyer who takes a retainer of like. 10k for a litigation for a court case where you're going to be filing actually going to court not trying to settle they're lying like that's misinterpreted because you're going to burn through that in about 10 seconds right like you're not filing a complaint and all that stuff for less than 10. I mean, it just it just doesn't happen these days and even if you do it's going to burn quick yeah i mean if, when you don't have court as a remedy and you have to be creative but you know so so we have to come up with ways and and, and we have to walk our clients through through this maze of e-commerce understanding they don't may not have the remedy that they want that they're that they should have right they, they should have that right they should have that remedy but they don't it's too expensive so how else do you how else can you do it and so we 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 have to work on it and be strategic for those that do or when we do those cases on behalf of our nonprofit right then we can potentially bring those cases they're hard though like, like I said, we've been fighting with California and we have a case at the foot of the Supreme Court just trying to get all about how, whether or not we can just get into federal court just to get in. Like we've already won in state court. We won our court, one court case in state court in Pennsylvania, but we cannot get into federal court. And we think this is a federal issue because this is multi-state. Every state's taking this position against the Amazon sellers. I'm like, that's wrong. So we're trying to just convince the courts like we have a basis for getting to federal courts because there's a law out there that says you can't get to federal court when you have a state tax issue. You're supposed to go to state court. And we're like, well... But the state court won't hear us unless we pay an absurd amount of money. So what happens when the state court, when the state government wants you to pay millions, right, back taxes? The only way to get out of it is is to pay those millions and then sue for a refund. And it's like, but, you know, my constitutional rights were violated at the start of this thing. Why don't I get a right to say that? Well, because the federal courts, um, the Congress specifically excluded state local tax court cases from federal court. And there are some exceptions, and that's what we're trying to get in under. But they're not easy because the judges in federal court hate state taxes. They'd rather, you know, they look at you like you, you like you just murdered like a family of five. Like when you bring a tax case in the federal court, they look at you like you're worse than that guy. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a horrible feeling when you bring a state tax case to federal court. You know, you just feel like you, you just feel like you're 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 like it's like they're the they're the immune system and they're tax. It's just, it is what it is. So that's what we, that, that's what we keep contending with. That's what we keep having to deal with. So the other end of the spectrum, then, if, if you're consistently, Paul, trying to fix a scenario or treat a scenario is to actually cure it. And, and part of your organization, you're, you're essentially the executive director of what's called the Online Merchants Guild. To my knowledge, 
that is an organization that is created to try to give online sellers a voice in legislation. So instead of trying to fix the problem, it's kind of curing the problem a little bit. Can you can you walk me through? Is that accurate? Am I am I getting that wrong? Or can you give me a little, little more information there? I was joking. I said my time in those big companies was great. I loved working for those huge companies. I love the work life balance, which is a top word you're not supposed to say. But I mean, I I had a great nine to five experience, right? Working these companies, they paid well. You you didn't have to work. 24-7, like when you're in your own business. But the issues that we were dealing with at the time were just too good to just walk away from. I wanted to be in front of these issues. They were important to me as a former e-commerce seller who knows the subject matter, who knows constitutional law, who teaches Commonwealth class, teaches state taxation class and constitutional law. Like this is what was really important. So what I set out to do was sort of like build a law practice where like I can make money and support my life, but I could also spend time doing this volunteer work through the online merchants field. So the online merchants field is a basically a 501c6 trade association. It's effectively a nonprofit, meaning we don't have a, you know, we don't have a, a goal as a profit or, or we don't really don't have any, we don't even have like highly, like I don't even get paid from the online merchants like for my volunteer effort most of the time. It's just like me just trying to get things done and I'm happy to do it. I don't take any money from members and, and, and have that, use that money to pay me because that's not appropriate. We don't need it. And what we do with it is we basically go on, we take seller issues. So we challenge issues that we think are important. So when I say, you know, we want a case in Pennsylvania, it's usually not my marketing skill that brought the case. So we, we, we have this platform where we can say, Hey, we represent Amazon sellers. We have these members who sell on e-commerce or Amazon. It just, it's, it tends to be more Amazon these days because Amazon folks tend to get the issues first. Uh, but we are an e-commerce organization. Amazon is a subset of it. But we have these issues and we can go and we can say, look, yeah, we're going to challenge this in court. We're going to challenge the tax policy. We're going to challenge the price gouging laws like we were talking about earlier. Um, we're going to challenge uh, any issue that's affecting small e-commerce sellers. We're going to take it to court. Uh, we also you know, use the platform to speak up against the antitrust uh, investigation. So when Amazon was being invested, investigated by the uh, House Antitrust Subcommittee, we were the number one site. And, you know, online merchants killed was the number one site of resource. We submitted all this documentation and and stuff. And if you go back and read it, you'll read the report from 2021, I believe. You'll see our name all over it in the footnotes as, as being a cited resource. And I, I don't think anyone was cited more than us for what we did. So we, we you know, we, we we look for ways that we can kind of insert ourselves into the narrative and things that are involving Amazon or e-commerce to advocate for the benefit of, of seller kind, which is not easy. Partially because it's hard to get buy-in from the community. I, I was originally, when I started this thing, was told I wasn't responsible for buy-in. But the people that were responsible for buy-in kind of got chickened out a little bit, I'll be honest with you. So, you know, so we've never had massive buy-in that we had. Like, I love the program. I think it could be so much power, more powerful. Like, I think the idea of a seller coalition, e-commerce coalition, I mean, just the numbers involved, right, proves we could be the most powerful coalition. We could have the biggest lobbying, lobbying, uh, organization in all of Congress, bigger than the ARP, bigger than any of them. But it's just, you can't, it's, it's, it's like pulling teeth to get people to see that and be a part of it. And, and you know, the funny thing is coming from big corporate, like, okay, I remember there was this issue with uh, Chicago, I think, wanted to tax soda, right? And none of the sugar, none of the sugary beverage companies, Pepsi, Coke, Starbucks, Jamba Juice, none of them wanted that to happen. The second it was even announced that that was going to happen, all these companies got together you know, they, they came together, they hugged each other, held hands, sang Fumbaya, raised millions of dollars in the coalition to fight that and the tax law. They call it the Canada tax campaign, right? Through court cases, through lobbying. They did it and they raised that money in a heartbeat. Here, we, we're going on four years. We still cannot raise the money. We still cannot get the buy-in to do what we really, to really re- see our full potential. 
you know, what we really need is we need those people who who are the influencers in the community to kind of help, you know, see the point of this organization. I think that's hard, though, because a lot of the influencers don't know any better. They don't understand what we do either because they've never been corporate. They don't understand lobbying. But, you know, to me, like my basic preference would be if we could have $30,000 a month to pay for lobbyists in Washington. Like, why do we not have full-time lobbyists in Washington? Every day, knocking on Congress's door, telling them about this, that, and the other. Right, thirty thousand dollars a month in an industry of of, of one hundred eighty billion is nothing, right? Which is what the sellers sold on. This is just Amazon, right? I don't even the numbers are much bigger when you go outside of Amazon and even to eBay. So trying to raise thirty thousand dollars a month, you know, earmarked for lobbying. I mean, I should be able to find one person who can pay for that. But out of the sea, we just don't have the execution ability. We just haven't been able to do it, and I don't know what the cure is for that. I just think it's. But meanwhile, we sit here, we end up just being victims all the time. So you know, bad things happen at e-commerce, but they don't get upset. They're upset that Amazon's mistreating them. Well, why do you think they are? You have no power, right? Do you, do you think it's hard to get power over Amazon? It's not. It's very easy. You just have to be organized. Amazon, no one Amazon's afraid. What's Amazon afraid of? They're afraid of Congress. They're afraid of, afraid of being broken up. So you know what? It would be really great to have right now a really well-organized, like, you know, congressional coalition slash lobbying effort. That would be really good because Amazon's already spending a ton of money trying to trying to lobby Congress that Amazon sellers are happy. But where are we? Where are the e-commerce sellers lobbying Congress about better tax policy? Like, because the federal government could fix the state tax issues, all the state tax laws that have been causing us hell. Like, that could be fixed at the federal level, but Congress never acts. So that's what we should be doing, and that's what the online merchant school should be. But you know, we make do with what we have, and we try to you know pick the fights that we can, and we'll keep trying. One day, it either just takes off finally, and people get it, or it doesn't. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm. It's been. It's been. It's been six years, man. You know, we wrote that first amicus brief in Wayfair six years ago. We've had some really cool experiences and some cool wins, but it is one of those things that money would really help. And again, I don't want to dime with the money. I don't care. It's just so we can do cool stuff for the community of e-commerce. No, but especially if it's being used productively in such a noble effort, you know. It, it is. It's, 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 yeah, and everything we do is public record. Go ahead, go. Oh, it's it's cool. I was interested in just before we wrap up. I got a, I got a couple more things, kind of kind of a little broad. I know part of your services that you provide at the law firm also includes negotiating the terms while selling a, a business. So we've kind of talked about the the inception, yes. the taxing, and and the other part of what's really important to businesses is is making sure that they don't get taken advantage of in terms of when they're selling a business to these larger corporations. How do you help navigate that? What are some examples that companies should look out for when they're going through that process? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of the most complicated transactions you'll ever do or do when you're a small business, right? So our law firm is, you know, we're a launch, grow, exit, repeat style law firm. Like we're looking at you from launch to the growth phase. You know, you're going to exit. And most of our clients exit. What they want to do, they want to start it all over again. Or they already have it. They're already working on, you know, while they're selling, they're already working on number two, right? Or number three, right? So that's what we do. And that's that's kind of who, what we're focused on serving, that, that, that cycle. When you're selling your business, you know, a lot of times your brokers might, Make it oversimplify it. The buyers might oversimplify because they just want to sign and go. But but you can't. This is not like you're buying a house in a standard MLS contract. This is really these documents that they put in front of you are really what's the word? They have a lot of screw power. Am I allowed to say it that way? And you have to sort of like balance that out. So I, I sort of say, you know, at the end of the day, when you go through the process of selling your business, and let's say you get a letter of intent. Well, hopefully we're working with you before you get to that point. In fact, we think we should be working with you before you even find a broker because that contract has to be negotiated. But Let's skip to the point where you get this letter of intent, this letter describing the transaction you're about to do, how it's going to work, what your roles and responsibilities are, and what their, what the buyer's roles and responsibilities are. You got this letter, you know, how the diligence is going to work. And it's describing this transaction. 
And it also talks about how much you're going to get paid. So maybe it says you're going to get paid 4x times close, you know, your, your earnings at closing and then the potential for another 4x based on future payments. So a couple of things. One, you know, we always teach our clients like anything that's not being paid out to you like today at closing is like has to be, you know, subject to sort of what we call like a valuation allowance. Like, you can't give that 100% full value because there's a, there's a good chance you're not going to get it. And unless that number is really big, go back to the earlier part where we talked about court and the justice. Like if somebody owes you 150 or 200 grand, like you're not going to go to court. So you're probably not going to sue them because you're going to spend about that much money suing them, especially in M&A disputes or, you know, merger and disputes. And if you lose, you got to pay their fees. So usually for a lot of our clients, like, you know, it has to be a big number for them to go to court. But then again, we still say, you know, you're always better off because the way these contracts work in terms of risk, which we'll get into, you're always better off negotiating for more closing cash than you are for future payouts because they're just, you know, the other thing we can't do is what if they don't have the money? If they don't have the money to pay you, then what are you going to do? Right. Like, I can't make money. Like, you can win a court case against them and you can't make money growing trees, though. They're still broke. You know, maybe you can try to claim, you know, claim your brand back. You know, who knows? But those aren't easy things to do. So, but what really what we're here to do for you is we're here to help you negotiate your risk. So, if you think about what you've done in the letter of intent, you negotiate the price for your business. But if you look at the first draft of the document they sent you, and they send you most of the time, it usually says something like this, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but it'll usually say something like, we're you're guaranteeing us a sure thing in business and that we're going to be successful and make a lot of money. And if for any reason we don't do anything other than make a lot of money and become really successful with your brand, you have to repay you, right? It doesn't say that in plain, plain terms, but it does say that. And so it's our job to say, well, that's a little unreasonable, don't you think? I mean, this is a risk that you're taking. It's a risk my client is taking. So you've got to divide that risk up appropriately. And there's a sort of a market risk of what's appropriate. What should be, should there be a cap depending on certain issues? Should there be a time limit, right? I've seen documents where they've referenced a, a quirky Delaware law that most people don't know. And it says something like, you know, statute of limitations as, you know, the maximum statute of limitations allowed under Delaware law, blah, 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 blah. blah. Well, if you don't know what the Delaware law is, it's a 20-year statute of limitations. So that's basically what it says. You can set it up for 20 years. So you can be looking over your shoulder for 20 years. It's something that somebody might come back to you for your brand for something you sold 20 years ago. So that's absurd. So it's our job to help you negotiate that risk into what we call sort of a more market risk when you're exiting your business. And if you don't do that, you're, you know, you know, we've had clients who've sold their business and literally like, you know, two months later, they've been told they're going to get sued if they didn't buy it back. You know, we've had clients who've been who've who've been hit up for money. Not my clients, not people I've done. Because my clients typically understand like they share our philosophy and they want to be protected and they want us to work really hard to keep their risk management. And it's also disclosure. This is the other thing we do. People go through this thing called due diligence where you upload a bunch of stuff to the data room. I love this. There's a lot of the contracts. So most of the contracts you sign will say something to the effect of anything that you upload to the data room, we get to pretend like we never saw. So if something that you told us in the data room turns out to bite us in the in the butt, uh, we can go to court and pretend that we never saw that thing you told us that they caused. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. basically they they yeah basically say it's not within the four corners of the document. So how do you get how do you get it in the four corners? Well you have to have your seller's lawyer basically run we have to run due diligence on you on the inverse and take all the stuff in your data room and stuff that they didn't even ask about because we know more about it. We know more about your business than they probably do. And put it onto an exhibit and get that into the document so that they can be warned. And then, of course, that gets negotiated because sometimes they don't want us. They, 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 they're like, no, 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 don't tell us about that. We don't want to know about that. And like, well, it happened. I mean, and you have to negotiate. So then you have to negotiate some sort of indemnity for that issue. So, I mean, to say that this is by any means a, a sort of like boilerplate, I mean, I, 
I love that expression. Well, isn't this just boilerplate? Like, well, I don't know. I mean, when you when you get on the airplane and you look at the cockpit, you just oh, that's just a boilerplate cockpit. What does that mean? Still be the pilot. That's what we do. I mean, we're here. You know, if you're selling your business for millions of dollars, it's it's, it's a small amount of money to have to pay for the help. But it's I, I strongly recommend it. And I strongly recommend you work with a lawyer who knows e-com, especially Amazon. If you're doing Amazon, because it's like there's there's Amazon and e-com specific issues, such as like the most basic one I deal with is like the Amazon sellers is that they have to uh, they have to have Amazon they have to represent and warn, which basically means they have to promise that they have Amazon's permission to enter into this deal and transfer the account. Well, if anyone who knows Amazon and knows Amazon's term service knows that you do not get Amazon permission ever to transfer the account. Like they're not going to give it to you. And also knowing that that's how every deal works, you transfer the Amazon account. How do you, if anything were to happen to your Amazon account afterwards, and, you know, the, the buyer would have a claim against you and say, you lied. You told us you had Amazon's permission. You didn't. Well, how do you handle that? Well, we have to handle it. We have to put in language. It says we don't have Amazon's permission. We're going to do it anyway, but we don't have Amazon's permission. So don't pretend like you thought you did. Right. And that's those little things protect you in the event of what well, we don't know, right? Amazon has talked about cracking down on account transfers. So if that ever happens, you're protected. So that's why it's so important, in my opinion, to like have legal help. And you know, we created this program called sellerbasics.com, which is basically designed like at hundred dollars a month. And you can have like a lawyer, you can contact me and a whole other team of lawyers, and you can have just like free little conversations and, and account help if you need help help with the Amazon account. And we've made it so cheap because we're just trying to get people like I don't know, I feel like the legal community has done a number. Maybe we've traumatized some people in the past with our hourly rates and whatnot, but we're trying to make up for that and just get people comfortable with working with lawyers again because at the end of the day. Building your business is about building a value, building a value. And the last thing you want to find out is something stupid, some stupid thing you over, you, you, you didn't see is and now you're, yeah, you have no value in your business, right? But that happens all the time, right? We've, we've seen business deals go bust because somebody didn't know, you know, somebody comes out with like a, a patent or something. They had no idea that was out there. That's like the whole thing just falls apart. So those are sad moments. Well, and a lot of these CEOs and founders and owners are operating in 20 different directions that they don't think about certain things that you could be thinking about in that meantime, you know? Exactly. But it just seems like a lot of these people who teach these courses, like they don't value legal. Like they almost want to say like, you know, like I've, I've seen like, uh, you know, course, course traders, like people who sell those courses be like, well, you know, the first thing I'm going to teach you in my course is open up a Wyoming LLC on legal debt. And then they'll be like, see, I just saved you $10,000 in legal fees because you didn't have to pay a lawyer for an LLC. And I'm like, okay, so that justifies your $10,000 course. But I'm like, but I don't know a lawyer in the right mind who charged $10,000 for an LLC in Wyoming. And it doesn't really help. I mean, it doesn't really do the person any good. Like you do need, if you want an LLC to protect you, you should talk to a lawyer. There's just no question. You should work with a lawyer and, and get an operating agreement that and make sure your LLC is in the right state and make sure you get an operating agreement that works to protect you from the various threats out there, not just some generic legal zoom schlock, right? That just doesn't work. You know, entity, I call entity. In my personal opinion, a good lawyer is like insurance. You know, it's something that you have in case something goes wrong, not something that you get once things are going wrong. I feel like what you're saying is the is the latter is happening when really it should be the former, where someone is on count, you know, a company retains counsel in perpetuity for when something goes awry instead of like, oh, great, this company's suing us or this client is suing us and now we need to get a lawyer. And and then their adversarial relationship with lawyers then turns around and bites them. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I agree with you. Obviously, it's sooner, you know, a lot of legal works like that, works like insurance. Like, you know, we have our, I always tell our clients are into like the asset protection of setting up trusts and things like that, more complicated structures, you know, in case they get sued, it's like, you can't, you can't call us up after you got sued to do that. You got to do it before. Yeah. Right. 
so yeah, I mean, working with legal is like you got to work with a lawyer and learn what what you need to do now, not when you need it. Right? Like you don't want to find out your LLC is garbage when you need your LLC. You want to find out now when you don't need it, so we can fix it. Right? And working with a lawyer will do that. Now, I I do get it, but some lawyers look they oversell. Like I mean, I think I do a really good job of making sure. Like I'm not going to sell a client like uh, you know a restructuring their whole entire life package if they're not making a lot of money, right? Like somebody who sells hoverboards and makes ten million dollars a year probably needs to do some asset protection structuring for a lot of reasons, right? But you know if you're if you're reselling Nike products that you buy at the Nike store on an Amazon and you're doing a hundred grand a year in profit, I don't think you need those things. I don't think that's necessary. So I mean, obviously, I do see like again. Not to be critical of the legal community, but I do sometimes. I see lawyers will just sell anything. You know, they'll they'll, they'll, they'll feed you the the, the line. Sell, so I understand why people are apprehensive. I get it. That's why we're not. I mean, it's why we we work really hard to be like what's appropriate for this person right now versus you know we can always revisit it later when the risk risk profile changes. But what does this person need right now? So before we wrap up, it's already been an absolute delight. I could go on for another hour. Honestly, the last question that we always ask the guests essentially revolves around how in the e-commerce industry, and you actually mentioned it yourself, operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, bring about mental anguish or stress or mental health instability and and that whole sort of thing. So Paul, with your free time, what sort of hobbies and interests do you pursue to ensure stability a little bit, work-life harmony? Sleeping. Sleeping? Sleeping. Nice. No, it's hard. Like I really haven't found the work-life balance. It's just too... It was really bad in 21 because we had this like huge bubble of aggregators buying up our clients. So it was like maybe, maybe there I learned a lesson. It was like a little too much. So I learned to hire more people. And then what do I do in my free time? You know, yeah, I do try to manage. I really do. I try to manage it because I have it. And then, you know, spending time with family is, is always good. And then like, you know, I'm a gamer at heart. So like, I'm, I like to game. I don't get to do it very often. I love Flight Simulator. Like it's my, I used to work next door to Flight Simulator people when I was at Microsoft. I just we love it, love it, love it. It's so cool. It's like, it's just fun to be able to like, you know, it's such a, a, an interesting program and in that it's got a really accurate representation of the world. You can kind of just type in any airport in the world, any any dirt landing strip in the world and you can kind of just kind of go and check it out and view a part of the world that you've never been to and, and in a pretty realistic way. So I nerd out on that from time to time when I have the time. But I think it's important. I, mean, I think I think it's you know when 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 you're in e-commerce and you're being told you know, the nine to five narrative sucks and you should you should get out of nine to five. I mean I don't know if that's true. I mean for me I've always thrived in that. I've never had I, I didn't have it very often. I had it for a very short window, but I always thought it was great. I didn't mind it. Yeah. When I had a nine to five, I was still selling on Amazon part time because I had free time for the side hustle. So you know my days were contained. It was predictable. My time you know I missed that. So. I think it's hard. I mean, for some people, some people really can thrive in that. For me, it's hard. You know, it's, it, it is hard. Mentally, it is hard to do that every day. You know, I want to I want to unplug more regularly. I don't want to be responding. You know, and the fact that my email is in my phone, it's like any text time I just start playing with my phone, I'm like, oh, I'm reading people's, you know, this issue, get that issue. So and it just never, it feels like it never ends. So probably putting in barriers would be another good idea. It would be like really get my email off the work, get, keep it on the work phone, not on, on another phone or don't look at it. I think that's a great idea. You know, I appreciate all the work that you're doing. And it's been a pleasure talking with you, Paul. Thank you. Anytime. Man. It's been a pleasure talking. Yeah, I appreciate it. I feel like I've done a lot, but I appreciate it. It's always it's fun to chat about what we do and appreciate your your research. And it's my background. And I thought you had really great questions. Uh, it was a great opportunity to reflect on what we're doing. It's, it's been a while because I've been thinking about some of this stuff. So thank you. And I always love to come back and chat anytime. We'd love that. We'll circle the calendar. You have a good one, Paul. Awesome. 
I'd like to thank my guest Paul Raffleson for joining me on the show and come back on Thursday when I talk with Jay Gibb, a former software engineer and current founder and CEO of a B2B SaaS company called CloudSponge, which is designed as a word-of-mouth growth tool. For more information about Paul, you can connect with him on LinkedIn. To learn more about Raffleson Law Firm, visit their website at ecomattorneys.com. And to learn more about Online Merchants Guild, check out their website at onlinemerchantsguild.org. That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until next time.